This is Brad Berkman from Green Spoon Water with the Ardent Spirit. We've been away for a bit, a um, couple of weeks, perhaps, maybe just a little bit longer. Uh, had a really couple of interesting uh, trips. That's why we had a little bit of a delay in, in, in past podcasts. I was at uh, the Discus Conference in Chicago, which is the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States Conference. It was a super interesting conference attended by industry members and policymakers and attorneys in the field. And a lot of really great, interesting things were discussed. Some of those issues we'll actually bring up perhaps today. Uh, we'll see how this um, conversation develops with our special guest, but we'll get to that in a minute. In fact, our special guest has appeared before. Some of you who hopefully who have listened before will certainly you know recognize uh, my, my, my special guest and, and partner here. Uh, anyway, I was also in uh, New Orleans at the Tales of the Cocktail, uh, another super event, um, really extraordinary. For those listeners out there, if you ever get an opportunity to go, you really should go. It's it's thousands of people from around the country come to this particular event. It's really a celebration of of, of cocktail culture, in fact. And you really get an opportunity to meet all sorts of people in the field uh, that is in the industry itself, including actual brand owners and producers and distributors. And uh, again, uh, you know, professionals in the field. There were lots of attorneys and lawyers there and some regulators, I'm sure, although they may, may have been in disguise. I'm not certain. Or incognito, uh, which is really a strong possibility. Influencers, celebrities. It was a really great event. So if you ever get an opportunity, uh, it's really worth uh, attending. And of course, it's in the great city of New Orleans. So um, there's always, you know, lots of fun to be had there. Here we are again today. And I did mention my special guest or our special guest, if you will. And uh, he's been on the show before with us. Mike Martinez is uh, my partner here at uh, the Hospitality Alcohol and Leisure Group. Uh, Mike, as you may recall, was counsel with uh, Division of Alcoholic Beverages and Tobacco before uh, joining uh, our group here. He's been here with us for, of course, many, many years now. And Mike is really a super great person to talk to on virtually all things alcohol beverage law. But for me, I really enjoy chatting with Mike about um, tight house issues in particular. Uh, first, Mike, how you doing, buddy? You there? I'm doing well. It's good to talk with you, Brad. Mike, it's always my pleasure to talk to you. And I have to tell our listeners that uh, although you can't see him, I can see Mike. And Mike is wearing perhaps the most colorful Hawaiian shirt I've seen. He looks uh, fabulous, happy, tanned, and uh, ready to engage in, I am sure, what uh, will be very interesting uh, conversation uh, today. So, Mike, obviously, and I had an opportunity to talk about, you know, what we're going to discuss. Um, and... It's a really interesting subject. We've talked about this issue of Tide House before, and really almost ad nauseum, frankly, but we're going to discuss an, an interesting nuance um, that, or nuance points, I should say, that really illustrate the fact that this bedrock principle of alcohol beverage law is being whittled away. Uh, through exceptions, through exceptions in legislation, uh, exceptions to rule, and uh, really, you know, market forces. Market forces play a big part, I think, in um, whittle, the whittling away 
of this concept of Tide House. And, and you know, to, to just be really succinct, right, it's, it's more than just Tide House. It's this three-tier system, right? We all know, and many of the listeners are aware, that uh, beverage alcohol in the United States operates through a three-tier system. We know that we have suppliers and manu- who are basically manufacturers or brand owners, wineries, breweries, distilleries, who sell to distributors, who then sell to retail, and then there's all sorts of, you know, the bodies of law, federal and state, that d- dictate the relationship among those three tiers. Over the many years since the inception of Tide House, hey, Mike, let me ask you this. How far back do you think ty- this concept of Tide House actually goes? Where, where historically speaking, do you think that um, this notion first developed? Any idea? I believe it goes all the way back to England, and they had... Um... They had pubs that were directly tied to specific manufacturers, and that's the origin of the the connection, the tie between the retailer and the manufacturer. As far as like United States regulations, I believe it was a post-prohibition uh, repeal when they really enacted the Tide House framework. Right. And I think that, uh, yeah, I, and the whole point, of course, and I'm sure Mike would agree with me, was to cut that tie, right, between manufacturers and retailers. And, uh, you know, what developed uh, literally uh, post-prohibition uh, with the repeal of prohibition was the uh, bodies of law, again, that created the structure uh, for the relationship amongst the various tiers in the industry. But again, we're going to talk about the exceptions over a time that have whittled away at this concept of tight house that is it's sort of almost like a regrafting if you will of the relationship between the manufacturer and a retailer and in some instances a distributor that is sort of creating that tie that uh uh that tight house was supposed to do away with and i'll point you to manufacturers specifically Right. So let's take a look at what we call, uh, well, let's take a look at manufacturers here in the state of Florida specifically. And let's limit this conversation, really, I think, Mike, uh, to um, Florida specifically. So in Florida, at a producer level, we basically have, you know, wineries, we have uh, distilleries, and we have breweries. And each one of those holds its own specific license type. A brewery is an example, will hold what's called a CMB and a uh, a distillery will hold a, a DD as an example, and wineries hold similar licenses as well that allow them to operate as manufacturers uh, producing their various products, right? Distilleries produce distilled spirits, breweries produce their beers, and uh, wineries produce their wines. Traditionally, these producers, these manufacturers were required to produce and sell to Florida licensed distributors only. But uh, over the many years, exceptions were written into the law and into the code that allowed uh, these manufacturers to, in fact, function in certain instances with lots of requirements um, as retailers of alcoholic beverages and in some instances as uh, distributors of uh, alcoholic beverages. So let's Let's just talk about, uh, as an example, oh, breweries. Let's start with breweries. So a brewer holds, again, what's called the CMB license, and that allows them to um, uh, uh, operate as a brewery and manufacture and make beer. Buried in the statute 
and I think Mike will probably agree with me, but Mike probably has a bit more of, a, of an understanding of the historical context of this. And so we'll turn to him in a second on that. But buried in the law really was this notion that uh, breweries in this state were permitted to actually sell uh, beers that they produced on their premises um, and, and, uh, and allowed them to sell to consumers on their premises in all practicalities, turning them into a retailer. Uh, the way the law was written, in fact, was that they were allowed and permitted to hold both a manufacturer's license and a retailer uh, license that allowed them to sell directly to consumers. Mike, why don't you tell, do you have a, a uh, an understanding of the historical context of that. I know it was for uh, a very long time referred to as the Bush Garden statute that sort of opened the door to this concept. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, if you could? Sure. I, yeah, I agree. In in my perception, what happens is, you know, you have an original entity that is very well represented with lobbyists. They get an exception crafted somewhat narrowly to fit their physical characteristics and then that operates for some unknown number of years until some creative person comes along and really sort of blows it wide open. And I, I, I certainly believe that it was the Bush Gardens uh, exception. That's when I started uh, with the state. That was what we traditionally referred to it as and knew of it as. And, and there wasn't really, to my knowledge, anyone else who had looked into this exemption and you know, obviously, with the advent of craft breweries, this this exception has really exploded to create a, a number of of smaller breweries, and some which have grown and been been absorbed. And I know you know a lot about that. But but ultimately, this exception has really, really expanded a, a great deal. And it it did start out, I believe, as Bush Gardens, and has has grown exponentially. When I was uh, with the state, we had some people that came forward and they had a retail license and they wanted to take advantage of this exception, but you have to be a manufacturer first. Right. And uh, at the time we thought, well, this doesn't really fit within the regulatory scheme, but how big could this possibly get, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this. So, so the retail license, if generally, you know, our listeners will probably, you know, uh, uh, when they think about this, this, this scenario, they'll probably think of tasting room, right? Uh, so when they go to their favorite, uh, to their favorite brewery here in, in, in South Florida or anywhere in Florida for that matter, uh, they have this notion that they're going into a tasting room and they're going to taste the beers that are produced on the premises. In fact, it's a lot more than just a tasting room, right, Mike? It's actually um, a separate portion of the premises that's licensed as a retailer, and uh, separate and apart from the manufacturing premises. And what kind of licenses, Mike, can these retailers hold, uh, you know, or the retail portion uh, of, the, of, the, of the brewing premises hold? To my knowledge, there's no restriction on the type of license that can be held. We certainly have worked with people of all different manners, restaurant licenses. Some individuals will have um, quota licenses, although that's less common. Many, right. many venues will have a beer wine license because it fits within the concept and it's regulatorily more easily obtained. So, yeah, it, it's definitely as we go through the exemptions, uh, it's interesting to see how they were crafted over time um, to allow for different concepts within the different manufacturing tiers. But in this case, they can and must obtain a license in order to sell products. 
Right. So what's great for our craft breweries, particularly for the for the products that they produce on the premises, is that they can actually transfer the product from the licensed brewing premises to their retail premises um, via any sort of mechanism, right? For a bright tank or, or, you know, directly into the tap handles or, I mean, there's there's all kinds of ways they can do it. And you can literally, you know, drink freshly brewed beer on the retail licensed premises that's been produced on the manufacturer's premises. All other products, other wines, other beers, and in some instances, uh, distilled spirits, particularly if they hold a quota license or an SFS, which is a restaurant license, a food service license, where do they have to buy those products from, Mike? So all those products are going to go through the normal distribution channels. And I think that's something that people might not realize that these, these, while they are manufacturers, they're licensed premises, as you've discussed, their retail location are generally subject to the same restrictions that other licensees would have, retail licensees would have in regards to obtaining products from distributors, they are allowed to transfer. If they have more than one location, they can transfer some of the product that they produced at another location, but only up to the amount that they are brewing at the receiving facility. Right. Interesting and a good point. That's a great point. Let's let's uh, let's turn it on its head for one second, though. So we're we're focusing on exceptions, and the exceptions are that a licensed manufacturer uh, can hold a retailer license, right? So this is an exception to Tidehouse that prevents manufacturers from being retailers. That's the whole point of this conversation, right? So pointing out certain exceptions in the law that uh, have sort of, of, of are, I don't want to say violating, obviously they're not violating, they're permissible, but are contrary to our general understanding of what, what Tidehouse actually is. So it, Mike and I were talking actually before this, and um, when we look at exceptions, we think about, oh, here's an important point actually, but when we think about exceptions, I think about exceptions, particularly from you know manufacturers being granted exceptions to act as a retailer. So it's again, granted to the manufacturing entity. An important point to think about and to keep in mind for those of you listeners who might be considering opening up a brewery or or or, or a winery of some sort is that once you qualify under this exception, you qualify going forward as a manufacturer, regardless. So you will be precluded from going forward from holding a purely retail alcohol beverage license at a different venue. As an example, you know, you can't open a nightclub and have a quota. That will qualify you as a retail licensee or a vendor licensee, absent some creative structuring, but uh, generally it's impermissible under the law. Uh, so you first qualify as a manufacturer and have to go forward at that level uh, and in compliance with the rules and regulations and the laws that govern manufacturing. But let's turn the exception on its head for one second. So let's talk about another little creature that we have here in Florida called the C- CMBA, right? Um, uh, uh, brew pub concept, Mike. So there's uh, this is an interesting exception. In fact, this is a, an exception that's not granted to the manufacturer, but it's an exception that's granted to the retailer. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Mike? Would you tell why is this an exception? What's different about the CMBA versus the CMB, right? The retail exception versus the manufacturer's exception. Yeah. So the CMBP, uh, the brew pub CMBP, exception. I'm sorry, I call it CMB. <laughs> so the uh, yeah, that is interesting in the sense that the retailer 
effectively you you have to look at what the primary licensure status is and to be to as a as a technical matter on it you are a retailer who also happens to brew at your premises so it's not even a separate manufacturing license it's a modifier on the retail license which allows you to brew right so it's it it really is very different uh and it's it's much more restrictive in the sense that you cannot sell anything you make to a distributor um right. so there is no way to truly grow your brand out of that scenario unless you unless you were to close down your retail venue and shift the concept over to a manufacturing venue but it is it is truly the the flip side of the coin in the sense that you are a retailer that has right. the ability to manufacture and sell for consumption on the premises your product right really interesting and uh, just to, just to, uh, for, for a little clarification or edification of the listener there is a limit on the number of kegs that you can produce a year right mike yes it is capped Right, it's capped at I think about 10,000 10, kegs a year. Ten thousand kegs. It seems like an awful lot of product, though, Brad. It is. I would agree with you. It's fifteen point five gallons a keg. That's a lot of product. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, I would suspect there are probably well, I don't know. There there are probably some CMBP holders out there that are doing it. I have to say the reason why I got what well, I, I had C, uh, CBMA on my mind when I said CBM when I, when I referred to uh, the craft brewers license as uh, with the A on it. Totally unrelated. That's the Craft Beverage Modernization Act and issues of taxation. Maybe we'll talk about that another time. Let's jump over to, um, since we're talking about breweries, let's just talk about the distributor exception for one second, and then we'll jump into distilleries uh, very quickly. So here's another interesting little exception that exists. Uh, that is an exception to Tide House specifically. Uh, generally, beverage law prohibits manufacturers uh, from being distributors of their own alcoholic beverage products, Right. There are a few exceptions in our beverage law. Let's talk about Florida that do allow manufacturers to distribute their own goods. And I can think of two instances where that's permitted. And I know Mike can too. Um, I'm going to defer to Mike and tell ask him to tell us just a little bit about um, the exception that exists, uh, particularly in Florida statute 563022, our dear friend, uh, known as uh, the, uh, as the relations between beer distributors and manufacturers. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Mike? Yeah, that is a very interesting exception, and it, it 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 I think it may have originally been envisioned as a situation in which a manufacturer could not find somebody to distribute in remote areas. They could have a a limited partnership arrangement and for a specific period of time. And it's limited to eight years, uh, and so that they you could fill in the gap if there was a problem with service. And while I was with the state, we we got involved in some litigation, and it turned out that a extremely large manufacturer uh, in Miami Dade County was apparently unable to locate a distributor, which was somewhat surprising to us, <laughs> and had a had a limited uh, partnership arrangement. Right. Such that they were also involved as the distributor of their own product. Right. Um, and it's not that is no longer the existing structure. But at the time, it was it was a real eye opener. And I for think that, that it, for that particular uh, company you're thinking of, it's no longer right. 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 And, and I, and I, 
Right. And it really highlights something. And that is there's so many of these relationships or these exceptions and these structures are are opaque and, and very convoluted. And the regulators do not necessarily have a, a grasp of what is really occurring uh, in the real world, so to speak. That yeah. one definitely, like I said, wasn't unlawful. There wasn't anything improper. It had been structured correctly and everything was above board. But it certainly, it could be argued of whether or not it fit within the spirit of the law, but it certainly was not. It, it was not, you know, illegal or anything of that nature so well, so that 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 but it's a limited exception to some extent right. it is a limited exception it's only you, you can only exist for i think a period of no longer than eight, than eight years and it's got to be formed as a limited partnership exclusively that is i believe uh, the um manufacturer would be the limited partner in the uh partnership with the distributor if i if i've got that correct i think i do in fact um, so it is interesting, but it's an interesting exception as well that exists in the beverage law, right? So now we've addressed um, the manufacturer retailer exception. We have addressed manufacturer distributor exception, particularly as it relates to malt beverage products. Let's jump over to our um, our, our friend, the uh, the uh, distilled spirits plant, um, and talk a little bit about how. The exceptions exist uh, for producers of distilled spirits, and you know it's very different. It's not now. I now I, let me just backtrack for one second and say this: uh, we sort of skipped over wineries, Florida wineries, uh, but um, wineries have similar exceptions. And I say this in a general way to breweries. Okay, these uh, as CMBs and CMBPs is an example. Those exceptions do exist with their own nuances for wineries. Uh, but for the purposes of time, uh, we'll just simply say that they are fairly similar to uh, our uh, the winery exceptions are fairly similar to the brewing exceptions. Um, uh, but I think it might be a little more interesting for the purposes of this conversation to now talk a little bit about, again, distilleries and what exists there. And here in Florida, in particular, distilleries obviously qualify as a uh, manufacturer, not dissimilar, again, to the wineries and the breweries, as we discussed. So they hold a manufacturing license. Um, uh, there are two kinds available. There is a, a full production distillery, which holds a D, what we call a DD license or DABT or DBPR calls a, uh, a DD license in the state. For those of you who would didn't get the acronyms there. Let me just uh, add that DBPR is a Division of Business and Professional Regulations, and um, DABT is excuse me, Department, and DABT is the Division of Alcoholic Beverages and Tobacco, the regulatory body that oversees uh, alcohol and tobacco in the state of Florida. The DD license, the distiller's license, is a full-fledged distillery that really is not granted any special exceptions under Florida beverage law. The CD or craft distillery is a unique animal in this state and differs significantly from the exceptions granted to brewers and wineries. Um, Mike, why don't you, if, I mean, why don't you jump in here and tell us a little bit about why these yeah. exceptions are so unique? What, what's the difference between, let's say, the brewery and a, a distillery operator? To me, it's some of this is tied historically. So, so the winery exception was the original one in 1963. Then you have the the 
brewery exception, the Bush Gardens exception, and then you have the explosion in the uh, to early 2000s of the craft breweries. And I, I think what happened was uh, the distribution tier, the distributors realized that the loosening of Tidehouse was accelerating and the change. And once you, once you took the genie out of the bottle, that it was very difficult to put it back. And there were deals cut to get exemptions and you know that this would be all they ever went for. And then every year they would come back for more and more and more. So in my perception, when the distillers came forward and made a lot of the same arguments that the breweries had made, uh, that the, the lobbying effort was much more advanced and prepared to, to do right. battle on these issues and to hold them off as a practical that's, matter. That's so interesting, really. Yeah. So they also, and so it was crafted in a very, very different way in the sense right. that a distillery is the only entity ever created, to my knowledge, in the history of the beverage law, which could sell alcohol without having a retail license. Fascinating, really. Yeah, so they're the only ones. Originally, they were allowed to have these, you know, so that, Tell us what that means. Tell us how, how do they go about selling without a license? Well, they were allowed to have a room either on or adjacent to their premises where they would, they were allowed to sell very specific amounts of their own product, uh, right. no other product. It started out very narrow, limited right. amounts, only if they were a craft distillery. So there were production limitations that were put in place right and they and they really just sort of the the getting the camel's nose through you know they barely they started out with very very restrictive and i think the the concept by the industry was to not let them obtain a retail license uh that tends to expand the or weaken the tight house structure which of course if you're a distributor and you have a monopoly you are right. loath to have it undermined so I think that was the origin of those issues. Sure. And over let time, me, yeah. let me just jump in, just draw a distinction. I think it might be important to the listener. And the difference between a distillery and a craft distillery is the amount produced. And uh, again, just for general information, a craft distillery defined is a distillery in the state which distills, distills, rectifies, or blends. Distills, rectifies, or blends 250 gallons or less of distilled spirits. So that's the number. That's the cutoff, right, Mike? If it's 250, well, well thousand. What did I say? 250,000 gallons, correct? Right, 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 right. 250 gallons? Yeah, that's what you do. Oh, right, forgive yeah. me. Right, right. It was, it's 250,000 gallons, clearly. Right. Uh, Right now, so, now, but again, that is a that is a lobbying effort to increase the requirement because it was a smaller amount and then larger and larger. So that's the right. way these things tend to go is to to loosen the the binds of Tidehouse right. at every session or the attempt is always made. So here's the interesting thing too, right? So there's a limit on so without this retail license, they're permitted in their tasting room to sell product directly to consumers in face-to-face -face transactions, right? Right. So there's a limit as to the number of gallons that can be sold there, right? Isn't that right? I think it's seventy-five thousand gallons of product produced. Right. So there's there? a there's a limitation now on the total amount. It used to be right. six bottles per patron right. per year. <laughs> and that has increased to thousands of gallons. So it is a very, you know, that that is just further sort of clarification of the expansion of this exemption. Sure. What else can they do with that, though, Mike? Not only can they sell bottles, but what else are they permitted to do now? 
Now, now it is expanded to where they can also serve drinks on the premises. They can, right. uh, and I don't know if you're going to touch on a a further uh, option where now, in a very limited nature, they can obtain uh, certain craft distilleries can obtain a retail license, but it's a very, okay. very tight oh, window. I'm going to let you talk about that one second. The really interesting thing is, is that now craft distilleries can have tasting rooms that in essence function to a very large degree as bars without holding any retail alcohol beverage license. So the super interesting thing, going back to our brewing exception and winery exception, is that you know in order to be able to sell it directly to consumers, you have to hold a retail license. Here uh, in the distillery scenario, you're not permitted to hold a retail license, but the way the statute is crafted and drafted, um, you are permitted to make sales directly off the craft distiller's license to consumers as if you are operating as a retail or vendor licensee. So it's another super interesting exception. But Mike pointed out that there is a unique provision in the uh, craft distillery statute that allows for um, certain types of distilleries to hold quota licenses. Mike, jump in, tell us. So the the destination entertainment venue craft distillery, which is a very specific set of limitations arguably crafted for one venue it's got to be within a redevelopment area uh, under a community development plan uh it has to be a craft distillery it's got to be adjacent to uh, modal transportation options uh, minimally bicycle pedestrian trail so it's it's and they has to have an area of at least 15 acres and have an indoor event so that so obviously there is a location which has a very impressive lobbyist which got this exemption put in but it seems there may have been some a bit of horse trading in the sense that there were some other limitations that were that were added in at the time of this passage uh, but what but the other thing is that a there it, for distilleries there is no distribution exception um, as there is, as we mentioned for breweries right. and there is for the wineries. So they have gotten part of the way that they were trying to get to in a limited retail, very, very limited retail option uh, as far as having a license, not as making sales, however, but it, it, it is evolving, but they have not been able to crack the distribution exception as of yet. Right. Very, very interesting. Well, yeah, I think that's going to be a long time coming, uh, but uh, we can discuss that another time, I think. There's all sorts of very other interesting areas where we're seeing exceptions. I think we highlighted today uh, some of the more interesting ones, particularly looking at exceptions for manufacturers. And, and again, the reverse of that in the form of the CMBP for retailers uh, being granted uh, manu uh, the exception to act as a manufacturer. Mike, we're going to have you back on here and we're going to discuss a completely different topic that's changing the face of our industry and that is also whittling away in a most significant way uh, uh, at the, at the uh, three-tier system and Tide House. We're talking about, uh, you know, direct-to-consumer sales from producers uh, using uh, websites and the internet and how that works. Um, there's lots of interesting models out there. The listeners can't see, but Mike is nodding his head. I can see him. Uh, he's nodding his head. I, I know that he is. Uh, he finds this topic very interesting. He and I have worked on lots of projects together uh, representing 
uh, numerous participants in that distribution chain, if you will, that is the manufacturer, the advertising website, uh, retailers, they're involved as well. There are all kinds of different models, uh, but it's uh, um, it behaves contrary, if you will, operationally from the traditional three-tier system. But we're going to talk about that another time for another conversation. I'm just going to turn to Mike and ask him if he's got anything additional that he'd like to say uh, to wrap up uh, this podcast, and then I will say my goodbyes. Mike, anything you'd like to add before we sign off? No, this is a great discussion. I look forward to our our uh, conversations regarding the the direct shipping of uh, of product. That is fascinating. So many from a regulatory perspective, and I appreciate being uh, asked on, and look forward to working with you on this in the future. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. We always have a lot of fun. It's interesting stuff. And what the listeners are not privy to is the the debates and the arguments and the discussions that uh, uh, proceed these podcasts. Uh, anyway, we appreciate you listening. Until then, I like to sign off with uh, uh, cheers. That is cheers in a language other than English. So today we're going to go with kanpai, which me, which is Japanese for cheers, or which is apparently literally translated as dry cup or empty the glass. So for all you listeners uh, of the Ardent Spirit, kanpai, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.